You're listening to a North Valley Community Church podcast. For more information and resources, visit us online at northvalleychurch.org. Well, good morning. Man, and last weekend was our family camp weekend. We loved it. We had a ton of fun. Thanks for being a part of that, those of you that were. And then the rest of you, thanks for giving and serving and helping this be a fun family church. So let's celebrate that just for a moment. That's really fun. Uh, one of our values at the church is just to have fun, and, and the kids had a blast, so it was a lot of fun to see that. People were asking, Pastor Ryan, why weren't you there? I'm like, man, I can barely sleep, so I would have been foggy as foggy could be on Sunday morning had I camped out on Saturday night. So, um, But maybe next year we'll do it on a Friday night, and then I can stay the night, and that'd be a ton of fun. So anyway, uh, we're excited. We're going to be kicking off a brand new message a series uh, leading up to Easter called Designed to Shine. Let's say that together. Designed to shine. So God's called you to be a, a light and, and an influence. And so we're going to look at today in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, kind of what all that means. So um, if you'll go ahead and grab it, your Bible, you can open it up, your digital device. If you just get you in the context of where I'll be preaching out of, I'll have the, the, the scriptures on the screen as well. But it's always a good habit to kind of open up the scriptures on your digital device or your, your Bible there. Um, so, uh, how many of you guys, did you notice anything different in the courtyard? Just kind of like a car out there? Yep, that's not my car, just so you know. I didn't park right there so I could have easy access to get in here. Somebody asked, oh, was that Pastor Ryan's car? He just like, he just so lazy. He just can't walk to the place, you know. How many of you ever been to a church before and it's like pastor parking right at the front? Somebody tried to do that with us. I was like, no, 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 no. We are not doing pastor parking for Pastor Ryan because I think it's important to lead by example. And we want to we value our guests and the folks so that they get the new, they get the front row, new here, start here. That's where they park. Um, so I park in the back. So that's where I park. Um, that car, it actually was donated by somebody in the church. Uh, it was uh, an answer to prayer. I've been praying for a long time that God would use our church just to be generous to the community at large. And so part of this challenge designed to shine, um, that we're to shine the love of Jesus Christ to the community at large. So a prayer request was years ago, Lord, uh, may this be a church where maybe like somebody outside of the church uh, fell into a hard time and our church could respond um, by uh, helping them. And so what we're doing is over the next 30 days, we're going to be um, asking you all to help get the word out to friends and family or people in need outside of the church that maybe lost their job during the pandemic, maybe went through a really tough time, maybe a divorce or a loss of some sort, and they're in financial hardship and they need transportation. So then what we're going to do is we're going to take that list and pray about it, and then we're going to donate that vehicle to somebody in need. Amen? Yeah. Isn't that cool? So that'll be fun. We'll do that. So would you pray with me on that, and then would you start to get to work and just kind of see who's out there, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll donate that vehicle um, sometime in the next maybe 30 days or so. So again, we don't want to rush it, but that vehicle is there as a reminder that we want to make sure we share and show the love of Jesus Christ, and so we're excited about that. Um, you know, uh, one of the most frustrating things in life, I think, for uh, those of you that are doers is being told to do something, but then not really being told how to do it. 
Like your boss comes to you and he says, hey, I want you to increase sales by X percent. Or, hey, uh, you need to bump up the business and multiply the franchise and get more branches open. Or, hey, you need to, you need to perform better. You need to get more clients in. And, and you're wondering like, okay, thanks, but how do I do that? Um, that can be very frustrating. Uh, I think about as well for those that uh, are in school and the professor says you're going to have this massive exam and you're, you're going to have to uh, perform at this level if you're going to pass, but then they don't give you the right information to study and you feel inadequate. There's nothing more frustrating than being told to go do something significant, but then not really being told how to do it. And then I think about in the church when I tell you, go make a difference, go share and show the love of Jesus Christ, or let's make a difference and impact our world for Christ. But then I didn't really tell you how to do that. And so then you're stuck wondering, how do I do this? And so today what I want to talk about is what is a key formula for being highly influential faith, like having a faith that is like irresistible influence, like where you go, what you do, like it's highly influential. Most of us, those that would say, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, have an influence, right? We influence somebody or some, somebody. But how do you get to the point to be a world influencer for Jesus Christ? And so that's what we're going to be looking at today. So Jesus actually gives a formula to influence the world for Christ. And so I can, uh, this gives me nervous anxiety just repeating this formula because I just was not like the best mathematical gifted individual. So I went to business school, did business finance, did quantitative methods, did uh, uh, college uh, business algebra, and here's an algebra equation. SP plus CC plus SI equals HIF. This is a formula, I believe, that is the key ingredient to a highly influential faith. And it's found in one of Jesus' best sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, this is no sermons better. It's, this is the most uh, propagated uh, uh, message of, of Jesus' teaching is the Sermon on the Mount. And today we're going to be looking at how to be a highly influential Christian. That formula is key. So we're just going to jump into the passage. And at the end of walking through that passage, I'll explain what all those equations and how the formula breaks down. But first of all, let's look at verse 13, chapter 5 of Matthew, verse 13. Jesus is talking to his disciples. These are his, his folks that have been following him. A disciple is somebody who is literally like a, in a student-teacher relationship. So not everybody, listen, not everybody that's listening to Jesus is a devout follower of Jesus Christ at this point in time. Jesus is uh, declaring and demonstrating the righteousness of God. He's been doing some incredible miracles. Uh, his name and fame has been scattered out and people are hearing about him and following him. And Jesus takes, takes a position on this mountain and he begins to preach. And then these people, there's a lot of folks that are all hook, line, and sinker. They love Jesus, following Jesus, they're worshiping Jesus. But the disciples is a large group of people, and perhaps hundreds. And this is what Jesus says. I think he's saying this to the committed followers of Jesus. Uh, verse 13, he says this, you are, watch this, you are salt of the earth. You're salt of the earth, and then he says, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? 
It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. The first thing that we learn is that Jesus is creating this this powerful metaphor of salt. And salt was an essential uh, uh, element for uh, food and life and during this time. And so you you can't go without salt. Salt would have been used as a preservative with the meats and the fishes and all 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 the good things that you'd want to eat. Salt was a preservative. And we know that also what salt has many functions. I mean, if you go to a restaurant, um, you'll notice they put salt on a lot of the chips. And uh, if you go to a bar, uh, you'll notice they make everything extra salty. Um, and they'll bring lots of salt because it creates a thirst. And so, so I'm told at a bar that's what happens. You know, I'm not... <laughs> So, so, so you get what I'm saying, though, like salt creates this thirst, and then you're, you, you kind of want to drink more. So just watch that. But then salt also, it's, it's kind of spices things up. I always say to my wife, like, hey, let, let's, let's put a little salt on this thing. She's like, you haven't even tried it yet. I, 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 like, I like the flavor, you know? Um, so thinkers, theologians, Christians, pastors all ask the question, like, what did Jesus mean when he said you're salt of the earth? Does he mean that you're to create a thirst and like you walk into the room and people are like, man, I want more of that? Well, you could argue that because remember Jesus at the, with the woman at the well, when he meets the woman at the well and she's thirsty and then Jesus gets into the conversation and says to her like, hey, he's like, I've got a living water like that will quench your thirst for eternity. So is it that if we're to be salt of the earth, does that mean that you and I are to create a kind of this irresistible influence that people are going to want to know more about Jesus Christ? Or is it actually that we kind of like spice things up? Like we walk into the room and people are like, man, he always spices things up or she spices things up. She's, why? Well, they're a Christian. Okay. Or does salt mean that we're a preservative, like we're to hold back moral decay in our society. Like we're to preserve the truth, like hold on to it. And this is why you have councils and creeds throughout church history. So what does salt really mean? It's like pick a card, any card, which one is it? Like I, so we're going to get to that, but just take note of that. So obviously there's something there. Jesus says, you're salt of the earth, but then he gives another metaphor. Verse 14, he says, you're light of the world. You're not just salt of the earth, you're a light to the world. Ladies and gentlemen, that's global influence, is that not? That's, that's the light of the world. But notice it's not alone. He says, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. This is a really cool thing. Like if you've ever flown in a plane, I talked about it last week, at night and you fly over a city, you can see this beautiful, powerful city of this light display and it's awesome. And in fact, astronauts say that from space, they can identify major cities from space. That's how powerful light is. Um, back in, in, the, in, the, in, in, in the battlefield, it's been said with soldiers, right? When they're lighting up a cigarette and it's dark at night, like, that's a no-no. Because you can see for miles light in the darkness. But notice what Jesus says. He says, you... Perhaps he's, he's meaning broader than just an individual. He said, you, perhaps he's talking to all the disciples that are there. You are light of the world. But then he says, notice this, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. So the, the area of influence is not just individual, it's corporate. 
So the church, I would argue, is this city on a hill. The church is to be this light. The church is to be a lighthouse. The church is to be this massive light in the darkness for all society and all ages and all times. He says, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Then he makes practical sense. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. So what does light do? Well, you know, light reveals Light reveals stuff. Like, I mean, if, if you turn on the light, you can see things. Light also guides. Like, uh, 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 early in the morning, from time to time, I'll get up and go on a hike or go on a, uh, or at night, uh, we've been out mountain biking before. My wife and I have ridden up to Deems Hill on those mountains and watched the sunset. Well, then it's like, well, well, you need to get back and you definitely don't want to step on a rattlesnake. And so you need a light. And so you turn on the light, and then you can get down the path. Light guides. Light is this powerful metaphor in, this, in the Christian uh, 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 theology and thinking. Light also provides warmth. Like, how many of you were cold over the last few days? Kind of chilly, right? Some of you look like the abominable snowman. You've got so many jackets on. You're like, ooh. Uh, and then the sun comes out, and it pierces that through the clouds, and you're, you get warm. You're like, oh, that feels good. Um, what does Jesus mean by this? And then light attracts. It also attracts, like you people want to go to the light. Remember at the moment of death, people always say, if you're going, if you're at the end, move towards the light. Don't go towards the darkness, move to the light. So I, I don't know. I've never been there in that near death moment before and, and seen this great light, but light is this powerful spiritual metaphor. And Jesus says, you are light of the world. But then we also know that light repels, right? Like light repels. It, it like uh, when, when you're asleep and all of a sudden you flip on the, somebody flips on the lights, you cover your eyes or in the spiritual sense or relational sense. I remember as an unbeliever, I was not a Christian. And then I went and hung out with some Christians and I kind of felt exposed because there was a lot of things in my life that I was ashamed of and guilty about. And then when I got around them, I, I, I heard their genuine authenticity and vulnerability and their character was so great and mine was so shabby. And I felt exposed. And, and light has that powerful influence to reveal and yet it also can repel. And unbelievers at times can get afraid and want to run away from Christians because it's like a bright light. So... Jesus says this, he says, in the same way, let your light shine before others. It let your light shine before others, and he says, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven, verse 16. So you and I are to let our lights shine. I believe that you were designed to shine. Ephesians says that you were created uh, uh, for good works, meaning God made you, he wired you, he functioned you, he fashioned you so that you could do good works. And let me explain something real quick for, for the 21st century evangelism and witness and influence in American culture. Right now in this time, perhaps in any other time in ever world history, the church is being valued not for our good news, but our good works, the things that we do. So it's very important that churches do stuff like that demonstrate good works. Did you know that 80% of unchurched people, people that don't have a church home, people that are not Christians, or at least don't affiliate as Christians, 80% of the unchurched says this, listen, 
oh, we value the church. We see the importance of the church. The church actually holds a very important role within society to serve the poor and the needy. And we think it's important for those that need some assistance. It's like a crutch to help them get through whatever they're going through. The church actually has a positive perception in the mind of the unchurched by and large. Why is that? Because this area of good works is so essential. They see the good work. Uh, you know, back in, in, in uh, if you want to study sociology and history, uh, Christian from a Christian perspective, Rodney Stark is a sociologist out of uh, Baylor University. He's got some great books on Christianity and the influence throughout history. And one of the things that he highlights that I really love is he talks about how um, Christians throughout all of his history were the ones that were seeking to do good in the midst of a crisis. So like in, during the, the era of the bubonic plague and all these crazy pandemics, Christians were there on the front lines showing the love of Jesus Christ. And you think about the, the work that's been done in Africa among the leper colonies and the, the work that's been done in, in these uh, third world countries. Or you think about our church that even during a pandemic said, we're going to go ahead and go move forward. We're going to build that house in Mexico. And that next week we're going down as well and we're going to help do that. Good works really matter tremendously. And so what I want to share with you is that actually uh, there are some myths that I want to bust just for a moment that you may have bought into what I would call uh, the negative narrative in the news, in the media, in mainstream media. And so this is very cultural and very important to understand because you need to understand as a Christian, you are on the winning team. You are on the team that actually is going to have a massive influence for every generation. Um, there is a, a, a narrative that is gone out not only in the mainstream media, but in the blogosphere, um, two myths that the church has lost its influence or Christians. Myth number one, Christians have lost their influence in American culture. Um, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but many of you have bought into that lie. Um, I would say that is a, that's, a, that's a myth. That's wrong. Um, let me tell you, Protestant evangelicals are still the largest religious group. As of January 2016, it was 55 to 60% of Americans said that they were somewhat to very churched. In other words, the majority of America are churchgoers. Now, it is true that the unchurched is growing every year by about a percent. Um, but so is the population. So is the birth rate. So our world is getting bigger, but I have news to share with you that 70.6 Americans still call themselves Christians. Now, how many of them are, you know, uh, influential Christians or really living out their Christian values that we don't have, I don't have research on. But here's what's going on is even a Gallup poll did research that by 2050, still Christians are going to be the largest global religious group in the world. We're growing. We're continuing to gain an influence. So you might say, well, what's happening? Because I've heard some negative news even from you, Pastor Ryan. Well, what's happening is there is a move and shift in government and policies to be harder on religious groups in the efforts of the name of equality. But what's going to happen to the church? Here's what's going to happen to the church. The church will continue to thrive. And you ask, well, is there a case study for that? First century, Rome, 
under systematic governmental persecution, the church still flourished. Look at China under persecution. The church still flourished. Constantly, continually, you're going to see the church is going to continue to have a massive influence in America and around the world. And you may ask the question is, well, how did, how did these false claims come about? Well, that leads to the second myth is this, is that young people have left the church and they're never going to return. How many of you guys have heard that myth before? I'm asking that one. Young people are leaving. They're not coming back. Here's a statistic that I, I've, I grew up hearing. 80% of youth stop attending the church after they graduate high school. How many of you have heard that myth before? Raise your hand. There you go. Um, 88% of children in evangelical homes leave the church by 18. Okay, that's another one. Or 96% of American teenagers will leave the faith altogether. Here's what you don't know. That uh, what happens is, because we live in the information age, is you create a blog, it becomes believable, and then it becomes viral. Get it? So literally, somebody can be home in their PJs or in their undies, they write a, write a blog, it all of a sudden becomes believable because there is some merit to what they're saying, and then it starts to spread like wildfire, and then denominations pick it up and then tout it as a major crisis, and then we have what I call like a chicken little culture. The sky is falling, everything's bad, we've lost all our hope. And it becomes crazy. Actually, what happened with that is those were some teenagers that were not statisticians, uh, weren't even on staff. They were youth leaders and college young leaders that were in charge of some uh, citywide outreaches, created some blogs, and it perpetuated throughout culture. Um, Actually, what research shows, which I'm really excited to share with you, is that research actually shows that uh, the the large that that more than let me find the exact numbers real quick. Um, more than one-third of unchurched Americans said that they plan to attend, that's 33%, plan to attend church regularly in the future. That's literally some 47.6 million adults and children in America right now that say, we plan to return. We're just been out. And right now there's a lot because of COVID-19 and a lot of folks have just quit going to church. But the largest, the highest group age bracket that plans to return to church is actually millennials. It's millennials that are saying we're coming back. And the millennials did check out a church in so many ways. And now here's why. Follow with the logic. It just makes perfect sense. So kids that grew up in the church, right, they say, well, it's mom and dad's faith. Well, at 18, they say, I don't know, I don't have to go to church, so why do I want to go to church? And by the way, church where I'm visiting and looking at in college looks nothing like my youth group. So there's a disconnect, so we don't go to church. And then 18 to about 30 or 25, they say, let's go back to church. Now, let me tell you why, what are the triggers to go back to church for the unchurched? Think about it. Marriage, we see that all the time. Uh, divorce. Um, a baby, uh, a move, job transfer, those are the major triggers. So the vast majority of people that say, I'm not churched, I don't want to be in church right now, actually are saying, I'd like to get back to church at some level, at some time, it's just I'm out for a while. And what happens is this negative spin comes on it that everybody's leaving, the church is diminishing, lost its influence, I think all in the effort to just write some books, get some blogs, become famous, and that's just not the case. So Jesus says, I'm going to build my church. And he's looking for faithful followers to be the influence 
makers. So let's get back to that formula. Here's a formula for you. A formula for a highly influential faith is this. SP plus CC plus SI equals HIF. So number one, God desires us to live with a spiritual potency. That's SP. He desires you to live with a spiritual potency that in the spiritual realm, there's, you're not impotent, you're potent. And I say that because Jesus made that analogy and that metaphor in talking about salt. And remember what he said right after that. He says, and basically, if salt loses its flavor, its potency, it's worthless. You have a potency in the spiritual life, especially as you tap into the power of God in your life. When you invite the Holy Spirit to surge you and to take control of your every day, the Bible says that when we receive Jesus Christ as Lord, that the Holy Spirit permanently indwells us, but we can have extra measures and filling and power by the Holy Spirit as we call upon him. This is why the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians, be filled, present tense imperative. Be filled with the Holy Spirit continually, consistently. So when you go on a missionary trip or a mission journey or face a big challenge, you say, Lord Jesus, fill me with your spirit with extra measures. Give me power. Dynamos. That's what the early church asked for. That's what Jesus told. He says, and you will receive power and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So you and I need a spiritual potency. The psalmist said, strengthen my heart, O Lord. The psalmist says, the Lord is the strength of his people. God is our strength. Ladies and gentlemen, when, when, when you have a spiritual potency in your life, it's because you've been meeting with the maker that you say, I'm connected to the creator. There's a spiritual potency in that. God desires each one of us to live with a spiritual potency, a strength. I believe that is perhaps the greatest metaphor with the salt illustration, the great understanding of that. Sure, do we hold back moral decay? Yes. Sure, do we make people thirsty and want more of God's living water? Sure, sure, absolutely. But I believe that salt metaphor ties in closer to that spiritual potency idea because watch this. Number two, God desires us to live in close contact with unbelievers. How are we going to make an impact and influence the world for Jesus Christ if we are not in close contact. An email? A Facebook post? A cross on the neck? A bumper sticker? An invitation to church? Maybe. That, that out of all those options would probably be the best influence. But you know what's even greater than inviting a friend to church is this. Hey, I want to invite you to Easter and then afterwards... If you don't have time that day, let's go to lunch. Did you know that 80% of unbelievers would love to have a conversation about Jesus if, listen, if you will respectfully uh, uh, treat them with kindness despite any opposing view you may have with them? In other words, if you'll just, what if they say, well, I'm, I'm, um, I'm Muslim, um, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm a Mormon, and I, I just don't know, you know, I, I really just not, not into the Jesus thing entirely. And then if you respond back like a punk and be like, you know, well, hey, Jesus is alive, and all your prophets and all your people are dead, man. Come on, suck it up, buttercup. You, you lost all your influence. And so... Close contact. Here's what I understand is that um, Jesus had close contact with unbelievers. 
about the woman at the well. She got around. She had multiple affairs. She was lying about it. She was talk of the town. She, 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 was, uh, she was quite promiscuous. And uh, she was a Samaritan. He was, Jesus is a Jew, and they had nothing to do with each other. And then Jesus' disciples show up and be like, woo, woo, red alert, red alert. Who are you talking to? Why are you talking to her? And Jesus, in essence, responds, is, I'm the living water. She's looking. And he clarifies the role and responsibility of every Christian is to have close contact with unbelievers. I think of uh, in my own life uh, over, the, over the years of seeing, uh, I remember uh, back in Little Rock uh, on uh, Monica Lane, that's where Leslie and I had our first little house, and I got married, and it was an ugly house, and then we painted it so that she would be happy and cleaned it all up, and uh, just she turned it into a bachelor pad to a starter home. And my neighbor across the street, um, Asa and Rena. And Asa wasn't a believer. He worked on cars, had a hard job, had some back pains, and some. Uh, he was uh, kind of quiet. And then Rena, she was into some kind of spiritualism, new age stuff. I don't know. And I'm a youth pastor, and my wife always said, "Like, why do you, why do you always go talk to all the neighbors?" And I'm like, to me, I'm like. That's how we do influence. So I'd roll out the barbecue grill and, hey, Asa, come on over. Let's, I got some extra burgers. You want to? He'd be walking over with a beer, you know, coming on over. And then at night, you could always smell the reefer about five o'clock at night on their porch. And I didn't go hang out at that time. Don't worry. But he had all these, this pain and it was illegal back then. And uh, I had the conversations with him, close contact. And then I remember one day I pulled into the driveway and he said, hey, Ryan, Ryan, did you see? I said, see what? He goes, dude, I got baptized. I said, where? He goes, your church. I said, man, I'm so sorry. That's amazing. And I said, I was out on a youth retreat and he goes, yeah, you didn't see me. Like, I guess, you know, as an unbeliever, you think one church service, everybody gets it, you know. And I'm like, well, there's like five services, you know, like I I did miss it. I'm so sorry. And he's like, yeah, me and my wife gave our lives to Jesus and got baptized and we're joining a community group. Thank you for reaching out. I'm like, man, I I didn't, it was just close contact. Here's what I see with uh, Christians right now, especially in this church, and I don't like it. The older you get in your Christian faith, the less contact you have with unbelievers, and I, and I do want to say, let's change that. I think it would be better for you as a believer who has all these Christian friends to start giving more of your time to the people that need Jesus the most. Jesus was accused of being a drunkard, a glutton, and a friend of tax collectors. If you don't get any accusations against you, I don't think you're living as highly influential like Jesus was. So you ought to have some accusations against you. You ought to be moving into areas of darkness so that you can be a light. And you say to me, well, I, you know, I don't, I don't want to be contaminated. I don't want to, I don't want to be fall into temptation. Well, good. I, I don't want you to either. Like if you're an alcoholic, don't go to the happy hour. That's just common sense. But if you're an alcoholic 
and you're on, on sobriety with another friend who's even further down the road of sobriety, go hang out with an alcoholic on your territory and tell them about the love of Jesus and how he's changed your life. Because they're all looking for the higher power. So tell them who that higher power is. And so let me tell you, here's what my charge is. If you're a seasoned believer and you're like, man, I just don't know any, I don't want to spend time with those uh, unbelievers, you know, okay, so here's what you could do. What you could do if you're in this church and you're a seasoned believer, got good knowledge, good wisdom, then go and disciple, meet with, encourage the newest believer that you possibly know. Here's why. Because they need you. Second reason, those new believers, guess what? They're the closest to the unchurched. Does that make sense? Because they came out of darkness. They came out of not being connected to the church. So most of their friends are unchurched. And the longer you go in the church, in Christianity, you can go, I don't have any unchurched friends. What happened? And I'd be like, salt, losing its potency. So, God desires us to be close contact with unbelievers. You're like, how does that connect with salt? Here's how it connects with salt. When you put salt on your meal, it changes the flavor. But if you leave salt on the table and do nothing, on, spread it on your meal, nothing has happened. What does salt need to bring out the flavor, to bring about the change? Contact. Does that make sense? So you all could be a bunch of salt shakers sitting on a table, but you never sprinkled it. And so what needs to happen is you got to be that salt, but you got to be used. So don't let that happen. Number three, God desires us to be spiritually, to spiritually illuminate unbelievers this means like uh, from the very beginning, from the very, very beginning of God's commandment, God's mission, the mission of God is to declare and demonstrate the righteousness of God in all the earth for all people at all times. And so how does he do that? He calls to himself a people and believers from, from the very, very beginning of our time, the Lord, the the prophet Isaiah, the Lord spoke through the prophet and said, you will be a light among all nations. And so you transition into the New Testament, into the early church. The church is to be a light to the world. Does that make sense? And so how do you do that? Well, you do that by living out your faith. You do that by not only showing good works, because everybody values good works and that's good, and you were created for good works. Serving the poor, serving the needy, contributing financially, walking through these things that we encourage you to do, taking an Easter bag to the neighbor next door, all those things are good works, and they're good. And God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbors do. But here's what I'm saying. We need to share the good news, and that is about Jesus Christ and what he's done in our life. And we can do that by witnessing and just by sharing, this is what Jesus has done in my life. Spiritually illuminate means that you reveal things. You share about what's going on. Spiritual light, if you're spiritually illuminating, you guide people along. That's what light does. Light, it can guide. Light can, can help you to bring warmth and encouragement in a dark time. You can be that light. So God desires us to spiritually illuminate unbelievers. But 
how can you spiritually illuminate unbelievers if you have no contact with them? So let's change things. So all y'all are going to happy hour today. Some of you are like, oh, I'm planning on it. I'm planning on it. (laughs) No, my point in saying is this, is that you, you need to realize the role that you play. You have a, a, a play to make. And it, here's the formula, spiritual potency, that's SP, plus close contact. You got to get involved in people's lives. Can you even name an unbeliever? Could you name a new believer? Plus spiritual illumination equals highly influential faith. So I told you how. You hear the boss, you need to raise this, do this. How? That boss ought to tell you. Yeah, ask your professor. Your professor, if you're going to succeed, you need to make a 4.0. How? Church tells you you need to make an influence for Jesus Christ. How? Here's how. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would be highly influential in our faith. You've You've given us a space, a job, Uh, an opportunity, a season of life. If there's air in our lungs and our heart is beating, God, we still are held accountable to be a, a difference maker. I pray that we would. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen. Um, before I head off the stage, I want to share with you um, about our giving. Somebody, somebody asked recently, hey, how's the giving at North Valley? The giving's been great. Um, it's stable, so don't stop. Keep it up. Um, but here's 2020. Uh, in 2020, this is what your uh, money went to. Uh, money helps fuel and fund all of our ministries. About uh, 40, uh, I guess it is 47% of our budget went to staffing. And then it says, uh, and that's pretty good. And that means actually that a lot of volunteers are, are engaged. We want to continue to see volunteers jump in because that helps uh, create more uh, ministry and work that can be done in, in and through our church. Um, Additionally, administration, it's a pretty low percentage there, about 9%. Facilities, says about 31%. That's a pretty good chunk. So you can see the two biggest things when you're giving financially covers our staff and our facilities. This is pretty normal for most healthy churches. We operate in a very good, healthy uh, metrics and size. And then we're about above average, actually, in the area of ministries and outreach, which is really cool. And so when you give, you need to know, like, this is important stuff, and it makes a big, big difference. So I just want to thank all of you who have partnered with us uh, through the pandemic. The church has grown uh, numerically uh, with people online and in the room and out of the Ramada and, on, uh, and online. So uh, we're really thankful, and thank you for your giving. Your giving reflects that. So let's thank the Lord for that. Good job. Thank you for that. And let's continue to make an influence for the name and fame of Jesus. You were designed to shine. Amen? All right. Thank you for listening. To become a supporter of North Valley Community Church, give today at northvalleychurch.org.